Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Hannah Critchlow. First off, let's take a look at some of the stories that are making scientific headlines around the world this week. Seaweed looks set to ignite a boom in biofuel production, and that's thanks to a modified strain of the bacterium E. coli, into which scientists have engineered a taste for fermenting seafood, would you believe? Now, this is a paper It's published in the journal Science this week. It's by Adam Wargaki and his colleagues. They're at the Bioarchitecture Lab, BAL, which is a company based in California. And... Why they've come at this is that they argue that if we want to make biofuels, at the moment the sources of biofuels are plants grown on arable land, sugar cane, sugar beet, and also maize, corn crops, lignocellulosic ethanol. In other words, you take the, the woody bits we don't want to eat of plants and you turn that into alcohol and then you turn that into fuel. The problem is that this means that there's now a competition between growing food and growing fuel, and that has the consequence of pushing up the prices of food and that upsets people. The one thing that people haven't considered, though, is what about the ocean? Because no one is really competing for the use of the ocean in terms of the plant life it can nurture, and that's where they've come at this. Seaweed grows beautifully well in the ocean, and as they point out, it doesn't compete and need any arable land, it doesn't need any fertiliser. In fact, it can even clean up the ocean by mopping up spare nitrogen that may have washed into the ocean in rivers, and you don't need to irrigate the ocean because it's got water already. So can we get useful energy out of seaweed? The problem is that seaweed stores all of its energy in the form of a complex carbohydrate or sugar called alginate. And this is very difficult for things to break down, and it's very difficult for individual bugs to break it down and then ferment it into something useful like alcohol. That is, if you just start with normal bugs. Now, what this group have done is to take E. coli, which is effectively what we use in many laboratories and we have living inside many of us, in fact, probably all of us, and they have endowed this bacterium genetically with some additional metabolic knives and forks, which they've robbed from other microorganisms that have the ability to do useful jobs. So the first thing they did was they went to a bacterium called Pseudoautromonas, and they borrowed from that an enzyme which can be secreted, which breaks down these alginates into small chunks which are more digestible. Then they found another organism which occasionally actually causes problems for oysters, and it's called Vibrio splendidus. It's actually a relative of Vibrio cholerae, the thing that causes cholera for us. And this particular Vibrio has got a whole bunch of genes in it which enable it to bring inside cells, so like transport, chunks of these alginates, then break them down and then turn them into other useful carbon sources that can be turned into alcohol. And they made these modified E. coli this way, and in tests that they announced in the journal Science this week, they were able to convert with 80% efficiency these alginates in seaweed. They infected a trial using brown seaweed, the, the Latin name is Saccharina japonica. They got a 4.7% concentration of alcohol out within just two days out of this with these modified E. coli. And they also point out in their paper that in a feasibility study, one hectare of seawater or of, of sea area could actually generate 59 tonnes in a year of dry seaweed matter, um, which would translate into 19,000 litres of ethanol, which is actually an efficiency or a productivity which is twice that achievable with sugarcane and five times that achievable with maize. So we could be about to see seaweed being exploited by cleverly modified bacteria like these that will solve our energy problem at least for a little while. Hannah. 
Cheers, Chris. Well, from energy to memory, a study published this week in the Journal of Neuroscience indicates that sleep can reinforce unpleasant memories. Remaining awake, on the other hand, helps you to forget. University of Massachusetts Amherst scientist Rebecca Spencer and her colleagues showed a group of volunteers a series of images, and she then asked them to rate how emotionally harrowing they found the images to be. Twelve hours later, after one group had been allowed to sleep for eight hours, whilst the other group were forced to stay awake, the volunteers were then asked to re-examine the pictures. With sleep, the um, individuals pretty much remembered most of those items from 12 hours prior. That stands in contrast to the group that stayed awake. They actually couldn't remember as many of the items. So that's how we could say then that sleep actually protected the memory for the items. By looking at the change in how they rated those images, the individuals that stay awake actually find those negative items to be less negative. The people who went to sleep, though, still found the images traumatic. The researchers controlled for the fact that the sleep-deprived group were not simply too tired to respond to the pictures emotionally by repeating the experiment with exactly the same outcome at different times of day. So these results might explain why some people find it difficult to fall asleep after a traumatic experience, because this may be the brain's way of stopping you remembering something that would be better off forgotten. There is this natural response for us to go through bouts of insomnia following something traumatic. And I think that our results argue that that's actually a healthy biological response. That is to go through a period of sleeplessness. We shouldn't necessarily treat that right away. We shouldn't necessarily give the person sleep medicines to get them to sleep more because these long bouts of wakefulness might actually allow the person to reduce their memory and also reduce that emotional response that they feel to any flashbacks or memories of the event. So, contrary to the prevailing view that all will seem better after a good night's sleep, it looks like precisely the opposite is actually what the doctor ordered for people exposed to traumatic events. Anna, thank you very much. I'll sleep on that one. Now, prior to a billion years ago, all of the life on Earth we had consisted of single-celled organisms. And then something happened to trigger squads of these cells to team up together to produce the first multicellular organisms, a bit like our bodies. And this was a watershed moment for evolution of life on Earth. Now researchers at the University of Minnesota have managed to make yeast cells do something similar. But in this case, it didn't take them billions of years, it took them 60 days. And with us to explain what he's found is Michael Travisano. So how did you do this experiment? The experiment was uh, pretty simple. We just grew yeast as we normally do in the lab, um, shaking. And then every day we let them sit on the bench and we had a race to the bottom. And whatever yeast got to the bottom first, we took those and started the culture again. And we did this for 60 days, every day doing this race to the bottom. And um, unlike Galileo's experiment where it doesn't matter how heavy you are, uh, for the yeast cells, the, the bigger, heavier ones get to the bottom first and so by, that, by using this mechanism of selection, we were able to select for, for things that were big to get to the bottom. So there's a strong selective pressure for bigger cells, but why does that translate also into clumps of cells, cells linking together? There's two ways that the, the yeast could get bigger. One, they could just get a bigger cell, and we did see some cells get quite large. But it's much easier uh, physiologically um, and, and, and via adaptation to just have your daughter cells stay attached to you when you reproduce. And so we'd end up with clusters of daughter cells attached to their daughter cells, attached to their daughter cells, and whole big family groups getting to the bottom very, very quickly. 
And what was the relationships between these cells? Were they literally just sticking together or did they really begin to behave as though they were a family of cells where one cell did one job and another cell next door to it relied on it to do that job and did a complementary job? Well, originally they all did more or less the same thing, that the, the whole family group got to the bottom at the same rate as each other, and that was the big selective benefit. But as we ran the experiment uh, along, we observed that a small fraction, about 5%, would go through a kind of cellular suicide, and that suicide promoted the kind of adaptation of the whole group. It allowed the, the group to reproduce faster. So we began to see some differentiation as we ran the experiment through. Have you interrogated the cells to see in what way they were changing to enable them to do these different jobs? How was it arising? Mostly we made videos, to be honest, and we watched the behaviour of the groups as they grew in our culture, and we could see how the reproduction was happening, that the, the number of cells in, the, in, in one of these uh, multicellular individuals would increase, and then it would, it would cause a pressure and a daughter clump would break off. And we were able to identify that the targets, the, the cells that were the most likely to uh, allow for that breaking off were the ones that were dying. That was the mechanism that we, that we did the most interrogation by. The thing is, if I look at my own body, there are bits of me which, if other bits of me don't work, those bits are inviolable. So if you took your clumps of yeast cells and broke them up, would the cells then lose viability because they didn't have their neighbour to sustain some function that they themselves were now deficient in? A bit like if I took one of my organs, it can't survive without the blood supply provided by a blood vessel and so on. Right, right. So um, these are very simple multicellular organisms, and so they're much simpler than us. With very simple other extant natural multicellular organisms, if you break them up, you can often recover the whole individual from a single cell. And, and you can even do this in the lab with plants. Um, and like those natural experiments, we can do the same thing. If we break them up into individual cells, except for the dead ones, the dead ones don't do anything, then we'll, then we'll recover the entire multicellular individual. And just to finish us off, what do you think this tells us about how the process probably did happen back in evolutionary time? I think it tells us that you can very simply evolve multicellular in, uh, organisms um, just by a, a very slight change in the relationship between a repro unicellular reproductive event, that just by not letting your daughter or your granddaughters and so on kind of go off, but by sticking, by sticking together, by having a cooperative strategy, that you can evolve multicellularity readily. Michael, thank you very much. That's Professor Michael Travisano. He's from the University of Minnesota. And you can read the work he was talking about, published this week in the journal PNAS. Hannah. And now with a look at what else is making scientific headlines this week, here's Mira Synthalingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. A comet diving into and disintegrating within the sun's atmosphere has been observed by scientists in the US. The comet C-2011N3 is one of the so-called Kreutz family of comets, which pass extremely close to the sun's surface. Over 2,000 of them have been detected in the past 15 years, but their paths through the sun's atmosphere were previously uncharted. And now, thanks to NASA's Solar Dynamic, Solar Heliospheric and Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatories, the self-destructive path of this most recent comet has been observed. Carrie Liss from the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory comments on the discovery. It's streaked at a million miles per hour through the sun's atmosphere called the corona, which is a million degree plasma. It took half an hour to cross the face of the sun before it disappeared. So you can imagine this giant dirty snowball that's been around for four and a half billion years since the beginning of the solar system streaking through this hellish environment and dissipating and rotating and fragmenting and breaking up and finally just totally being destroyed.
watching how this comet falls apart and measuring the light that comes from it can tell us an awful lot about how the comet is put together. Exercise induces the clearance and recycling of components within our cells, resulting in protection against metabolic disorders such as diabetes. Working with mice, Kong Kong He and colleagues from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center found that exercise triggers a process called autophagy, the self-clearance and catabolism of certain cell components. This is mainly triggered within skeletal and cardiac muscle to enable increased endurance and glucose metabolism, whilst simultaneously protecting against certain metabolic conditions. So our study helped develop the concept and increasing autophagy activity in general may be beneficial for combating insulin resistance, obesity, and maybe other related metabolic complications. Autophagy activation can mimic the beneficial effects from exercise. So the dream is sort of to develop a reagent that induces autophagy, can act as an exercise mimic. So we can apply it to those patients who are physically confined and cannot exercise by themselves. Citizen scientists could lead the way for earthquake research and detection in the future. Citizen science involves members of the public reporting on and collecting data to aid scientific research. Recent electronic applications in the field of seismology include the Quake Catcher program, turning your computer into a seismometer and placing it on a global network, as well as more mobile apps, such as the iShakeCal app for iPhones, collecting ground-shaking measurements. Richard Allen from the University of California, Berkeley, explains their importance in seismology today. People have collected relatively small amounts of data, and they're using it to locate earthquakes, to map out the earthquake rupture propagation across a fault plane. They're using it to generate alerts before the shaking um, is actually felt. We could go from having seismic networks that have hundreds of stations to seismic networks that literally have millions of stations. So that's a massive increase in the number of uh, seismic recordings that we have, and that has knock-on effects for all of the approaches that we take to mitigate earthquakes. And finally, the mystery of why the dung beetle dances has been solved by scientists at the University of Lund. Dung beetles form balls from piles of dung, which they then roll a safe distance away to feed on without competition. The beetles are known to climb on top of their ball and spin around along certain points of their route, and the reasons behind this have previously been unknown. Working with these beetles in the lab, Emily Baird has discovered that this dance is all about the beetles' orientation. This dance behaviour is a strategy that the beetles are using to overcome unexpected disturbances to their roll path. We've induced them to fall off a ramp, so they lose control of the ball. So their orientation is messed up when this happens. So once they've become disoriented, the dance helps them to relocate their original rolling roll bearing so that they can then continue in the same direction that they took. So they make sure that they don't end up rolling back, straight back into the dung pile, which is what they're trying to get away from. And the work is published this week in the journal PLOS One. Mira Synthalingam. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.